We're taking our Bibles. We're headed to John chapter 11. So if you join me there, I'd appreciate that. John chapter 11. If you didn't get sermon notes, then why don't you just raise a hand. The ushers will give that to you. We started off this morning talking about people have all kinds of difficulties, and some people have really bad days. Let me give you a few more of those really bad days that you can find the stories about. This bike rider had a really bad day just going down the side of the road when all of a sudden wipeout time. This uh, individual had a really bad day when they grabbed the wrong fertilizer and they killed their lawn instead of fertilizing the lawn. Here's an individual. This is a bad day. Kindergarten student spends entire day at the wrong school. Okay, bad day for the kindergartner or for the teachers who had a kid that didn't belong in their school. Okay, can you imagine that? Here's a bad day for somebody. Girlfriend's daughter left a crayon in her pocket from school when it went through the dryer. Imagine what everything else looked like. Young rookie fireman burns the firehouse down. <laughs> Here's... Put together the shelf and only to realize afterwards you put it together wrong. It's a bad day. Ooh, that's scary, isn't it? This lady, a porcupine, fell out of the tree and hit her on the head. Oh, bad day, bad situation. This guy has a terrible, terrible bad day. Whoops. <laughs> just to see it again. There it goes. Poor guy, just John 11. It's a bad day. Mary and Martha get to have, have a brother who's gotten very, very sick. John 11, they've sent the message to Jesus. Jesus, come and help us out. Let's get the story. John 11, bless you. Most people here know it, but let me read the, the beginning of the chapter. Now a certain man was sick whose name was Lazarus of Bethany of the town of Mary and Martha, her sister, um, it goes on, it was that Mary that anointed the Lord with ointment, wiped his feet with her hair. The brother is sick. Therefore the sister sent unto Jesus, saying, Lord, behold whom you love is sick. And when Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And when he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two more days still in the same place where he was. You wonder why John writes down a couple different times. He loved this person. He loved this person. And part of it is to explain Jesus' actions by the delay. It wasn't he didn't care. He really did care, but there's a reason why he delayed, which we already talked about earlier. But notice how the author wants you to understand there's great compassion on Jesus' part. And it goes on and says, then after that he says to them, his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples say, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee, and if you go there again, they're going to kill you. Jesus answers, are there not twelve hours in the day? And if any man walks in the day, he stumbles not, but he, because he sees the light of this world. If a man walks in the night, he will stumble, because there is no light in him. These things said he, and after he said that to them, he goes and makes this comment, our friend Lazarus is sleeping, but I go that I may wake him out of the sleep. Then the disciples say, Lord, if he's sleeping, he's doing good. Let's not wake him up. He's resting. Howbeit Jesus spake of his death, but they thought that he had spoken of taking rest in sleep. Jesus answers bluntly and plainly, Lazarus is dead. I am glad glad for your sakes that I was not there to the intent that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto them. Then said Thomas, which is called Didymus, one of his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. So there's bravado on Thomas's part. Then when Jesus came, he found that they had already lain him in the grave four days already. Now Bethany was nigh unto Jerusalem, about fifteen furlongs. And many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Martha Mary sat still in the house. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if you had only been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, whatsoever you will ask of God, he will give it to you. Jesus said, your brother shall rise again. 
She says, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day, Jesus said. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said unto him, Yea, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, which should come into the world. And when she had said so, she went her way and called Mary, her sister, secretly, saying, The Master has come and calls for you. As soon as Mary heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus was not yet come into the town, but was in that place where Martha had met him. The Jews then, when, which when they saw, uh, which were with her in the house and com comforted her, when they saw Mary, that she rose up hastily, went out, followed her, saying, oh, she goes unto the grave to weep there. Then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother had not died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled, and said, Where have you laid him? They said unto him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, Jesus wept. Then said the Jews, Behold how he loved him. And some of them said, Could not this man which opened the eyes of the blind have caused even this man that he should not have died? Jesus therefore again groaning in himself comes to the grave. It was a cave. A stone lay upon it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, said unto him, Lord, by this time he is his body is decaying, for he hath been dead four days. Jesus said unto her, Said I not unto you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone which the, from the place where the dead was laid. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that, when, that you hear me always, but because of the people which stand by, I have said it, that they may believe that you have sent me. And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus said unto them, Loose him, let him go. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did believed on him. But some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. And then they decide they got to kill him. And not only him, but who else do they have to get rid of? They have to get rid of Lazarus because he's evidence. What we have in this story is we have a lot of different information. We saw this morning that there is confusion by Mary and Martha because of all of a sudden this tragedy that takes place. But the story reveals a lot of different principles. What I'd like to focus on tonight is our Christ, Christ in our crises. Our Christ in the crises. What does the passage tell us about Jesus? In fact, twice he says in the passage, do you believe this? Believe in me. Believe, believe, believe. He wants this story to be one that would prompt us to believe and trust. Now that is true for those who aren't saved, but it's also true for the believers. And he asks his disciples, he makes comment to his disciples, this story is going to help you to believe more. He says to Martha, do you believe me? And she's already a believer. And so there's a, there's a factor for believers, for for those of us who are born again, this story is giving us some input and some details about Jesus that should help us to trust him more, to just focus on him, to listen to him, to trust in the Lord with all our hearts and lean not unto our own understanding. 
It is critical that we follow the Lord and listen to Him based upon what is displayed in this passage. There are times that sometimes in the military that some individuals will put themselves in or, or get themselves in situations that as they're flying they have to be very careful. Let me give you a story. That's a true story about Lieutenant Jeff Patton who was flying an F-15 uh, uh, fighter in the desert storm. On the first night of the war his mission was to escort a large formation of fighters embalming a chemical weapons plant in northern Iraq. The date for Desert Storm was chosen because of the absence of moonlight and the high clouds helped the attacking Allied fighters from being detected by enemy defenses. Flying in total darkness, the pilots became completely dependent upon their instruments. Shortly after crossing into Iraq, Colonel Patton's jet was locked onto by an Iraqi surface-to-air missile. He violently maneuvered his aircraft to break the radar's lock on him, and his maneuver successfully broke the lock, but it created a new problem. The radical movement in the dark threw off the balance in his inner ear that quickly, which sometimes happens, causing him to become a little bit disoriented. His mind was telling him his plane was in a climbing right turn, but when he checked his instruments, they indicated he was in a 60-degree dive towards the ground. He was sure he was in a climb instead of a dive, his mind was screaming at him to lower the nose of his F-15 to climb, to halt the climb. While his mind commanded him to correct the plane in one direction, his instruments were telling him to do just the opposite. Because he was flying in total darkness, he had to decide quickly whether to trust his mind or to trust his instruments. His life depended upon making the correct choice. Even though it took everything within him to overcome what his mind was telling him, he decided to trust the instruments. He rolled his wings level, pulled his F-15 upward, which drew seven times the force of gravity, pulling the aircraft out of its dive. It took only a few moments to realize he had made the right decision. If he had lowered the nose of his jet like his mind had been telling him, he would have crashed the plane. Trusting his instruments saved his life. Immediately he looked at his altimeter, which told him the elevation of his aircraft. He had narrowly escaped colliding with one of the mountains in Iraq by just 2,000 feet. Uh, and in other words, if he had delayed three more seconds, he would have crashed into the mountain. God will guide the instruments inside our hearts through His Spirit, even though our minds may tell us to do the opposite. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not unto your own understanding. That's us tonight. We have to trust the instrument that God has given us, His Son who guides us through His Word. Why is that? Why do we need to trust Him? Let me give you several reasons from this text why you should trust Christ implicitly. Number one, He knows your situation entirely. He knows your situation in its entirety. Here we have the story we've already talked about this morning. But Jesus gets a note from the sisters that they're saying that he is sick. We've already talked about that Jesus says, let's go back into Judea, but he waits. He waits the three days. The disciples, they're hesitant when Jesus finally says after that, two days, excuse me, after the two days, they head back and they say, we, well, now we're in trouble. We're going to, our lives will be threatened. Your life was threatened last time we were there. And Jesus tells them, now wait a minute. We're going back. It'll be okay. But, you know, the, Lazarus is sleeping. Their response is, if he's sleeping, we don't need to go back. He's dead. Jesus knows totally Lazarus's condition at all moments, and even when he got the message, there was a delay. Jesus knew exactly what was going on, though nobody had given him any more information. He knows the details. The disciples don't understand, but Jesus tells them that, that all about Lazarus. Here's the bottom line. Jesus knows Lazarus's status without any type of 
you know, internet, without anybody updating their status, Jesus knows ours. We don't have to update them. He is totally aware. He is totally aware of what's going to happen in this whole story, even before it happened. In verse 4, he makes the comment, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God. He knows how it's going to work out. He knows the good, the good that can come out of it. He knows the ends and the beginnings. He knows what is needed in the hearts of people who are standing by. We already read it. When he's praying in verse 41 and 42, Father, some of these people need to believe. So I pray, work in such a way that they will understand who I am. They will know that you have sent me so that they believe. Here's what we've got. We've got Jesus knowing our status. Without us having to update him on our Facebook, he knows our status at any moment. He knows our hearts. He knows exactly what's inside. Is there belief? Is there unbelief? Is there doubt? Is there battles? He knows that. He knows exactly what's going to happen tomorrow, the next day, this week. Oh, listen, we've got all these, all these technical devices that can tell us what the weather is going to be like on Monday. And how accurate are they? <laughs> how, how many times have they told us we're going to get snowstorms and it doesn't happen? And some of you say, praise God, and others of you are praying that it happens. Okay, the bottom line is our Lord knows. Jesus can be trusted because he knows everything about us at this moment. He knows our tomorrows. He knows our heart. He knows our body needs. He knows. He absolutely knows he can be trusted in any crises because he knows what you feel, what you're going through, what you need. He knows what your tomorrow is going to hold. He is totally reliable and dependable. The last thing we want to do in the middle of a crisis is walk away from him. He's our best hope in a crisis. I can't understand how people can go through crises without Christ, much less believers who say, I can do this on my own. Are you serious? There's a true story that comes out of, out of uh, the 1930s that there was one of those dirigibles that was one of those floating you know, ships that their peoples were, were often flying on during that period, short period of time. And there was one that there was some 250 men hanging onto the ropes and it got caught up with this violent wind. The wind started taking it up and some of the men who were holding it, well, they, they let go right away. They, they realized that it was going to get away. Others hung on. They were taken up 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 feet, 40 feet, and then a good number of them let go, and they fell down several stories, and many were hurt. There was one individual, one individual who did not let go. This guy, this, this dirigible goes up, and for 45 minutes it takes them with that weather pattern uh, to, to get it under control before they can land again, and that man was at the end of that rope for 45 minutes, hundreds of feet in the air. Now he got to the ground and one of those you know, wise reporters asked him, oh, what compelled you to hang on? <laughs> seriously, seriously, what's your options? Yeah, and, and so he just looked at him and then the man rephrased his question. He said, how was it that you were able to hang on? Now that's the wiser question. And he made this comment. He says, I knew that, that if I let go, I'm going to die. And I knew I couldn't hang on. So I took the end of the rope and I wrapped it around me and tied it off so I wasn't holding the rope. But the rope was, isn't that what Christ does for us? We dare not let go of him, but rather we should anchor ourselves better to Jesus Christ so he can uphold us and carry us through those violent winds of our life. There's another reason why we should trust Jesus, why we can trust Jesus, the Christ in our crises, number one, we said that he knows everything. Number two, he knows exactly what is best for us. 
He knows what is best. Now, I don't need to rehearse this whole thing. He, he's all, we've already pointed out that he knew for the disciples. He says to them, I am glad, verse 15, I am glad for your sakes that, that I wasn't there. You needed to know this. You needed to know that and see that Lazarus could be raised from the dead because it would help you in your need. And so he knew that the disciples needed this lesson. He knew that Martha would need this lesson. He knew that there was other peoples, especially the believers that they would need to know. Jesus knows what you and I need. He knows what we, what is going to be best for us, what areas we need to grow in. I need to trust in Christ. You need to trust in Christ because he knows exactly what we need. There was a program on not too long ago. Well, actually it was the last one or two times ago and then years ago it happened as well. But they repeated the program recently in the Winter Olympics that they showed in one of those interesting features how there were some peoples who were involved in some of the different Olympics that take place for different individuals. Here was an Olympic that was taking place for people who were blind. They had these people out there and these people were learning to ski and uh, had developed their skiing abilities and what they had is as they skied there was somebody near them that would tell them right, left and give them all kinds of direction to the point that they developed pretty good skill skiing and then they would compete and their guide would be with them telling them where to move, what to do, when to jump, when to crouch and giving them all those directions so that they could be safe and yet competitive even in that score board of skiing. I admire that because I couldn't even get on a pair of skis or put them on without breaking my neck. And here these people who are blind are going down this mountain and some of them highly, highly skilled in it. That's because they have to have total faith and trust in their guide. They have to listen to them. That's you and me. Our guide, Jesus Christ, knows what's coming, what's ahead. He knows and he, does, and he wants to help us not to wipe out, not to crash, but he wants us to compete, to run the race, to finish the course, and to be victors. He's not going to give us a bad, a bad deal. He's not going to tease us. He's not going to give us guidance and direction that would cause us to be, become uh, injured, damaged, or become foolish in what we do. He is trying to help us out. He is the best of guides. Listen to him. Trust him. He knows what's best for us. Number three, from the story we learn this about the Christ in our crises, we learn that he knows how to take any situation and make it a tool for evangelism. Some of you, and I want to thank you, I didn't say it this morning, some of you had taken from your schedule, I know many of you couldn't because of your work, but you were praying, but I want to thank the number of you who came, and what a good testimony. But a number of you who were able to come at Skip Hoffer's funeral this week, it really impacted and impressed the family, that there was, such a, there was such an outpouring by her church family whom they knew she loved. She had boasted on you to her family for years and years and years, and your actions, your attentiveness, your care, your cards made a huge, huge difference. By the way, Glenn's, Glenn's address, somebody posted, if you want to send them a card, I know they would appreciate that. Uh, that's her nephew. But in the uh, service, we did something that I very seldom do at a funeral service, but I wanted to do it for the sake of the family and try to you know, have a testimony towards the family and to hear a little bit. And we had several of you folk give testimony. Pastor Binkley gave just a wonderful story, wonderful testimony. Uh, Earl, are you here in the room? Yeah. You able to stand up and share that with us about what you shared? Uh, Art's going to give you a mic. That'll help everybody. Are you ready or are you going to take a while, Art? He's got a big voice. He can do this. Go ahead, start. He'll get you a mic eventually. 
Okay, I'll see if this works. That sound okay? You're on. Okay. And so uh, this one neighbor moved in diagonally across the street from her. And of course, she went over and invited them to church and bragged on the church, but they didn't come. And so I think several times she invited them to come. And then one time she went over to visit them. I forget the reason. But anyway, they have a little dog. And she reached down to pet the dog. And the dog bit her. The neighbors felt really bad. And they pled with her and said, Skip, we feel really bad. Is there anything that we can do for you? <laughs> you guessed it. She said, please come to church. <laughs> they came to church for revival meetings. And the wife brought her, her brother and his wife along. And all four of them made professions of faith. And uh, moved some, two of them moved away and got baptized and joined a church there. But what did you call this new evangelism? Oh, yeah. We, did, we kidded with her after that and said, we've got a brand new program now. It's called Dog Bite Evangelism. <laughs> Here it is. Here's an individual, Skip, okay, so concerned about evangelism, she could take something like that and turn it into a dog biting instance and turn it into a, a means of evangelism. And we look and say, she's really clever. And she is. That was very clever on her part. But our Christ can do that all the time. He can do that with any situation. He can take a death, a crisis situation for a family, a crisis situation where they've lost a loved one. People are gathered. They are weeping. They are wailing. There is great, great mourning. And Jesus turns what is in a crisis into a conversion time. And here it says that when he prayed, many people responded. In verse 45, many believed on Jesus Christ. They came to get saved. They responded. Now, Jesus is able to take your crises to reach out into other people's lives. Jesus is able to take death into reaching out into other people's lives. And it's not, I mean, we're not, we're not into the business of saying, let's, let's keep on you know, having death so we can do evangelism. We see how it worked in Scripture. We have seen it here time after time after time. People are tender at those moments. They are thinking of their own mortality. We want to share the word and take advantage of those opportunities. We don't want to keep having the funerals so that we have those opportunities. But praise God that God can turn some of the most heinous, grievous times in our life into something sweet. That God has used the home going of his children to speak to other people that they've come to know Christ as their Savior. That's exactly what he writes about when he says that people have even come to get baptized because of the testimony of those who have died. The Mormons take that passage in 1 Corinthians and they make it into the idea we should get baptized for the dead. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean that you go through the acts and they get forgiven. It's the idea of their legacy, their testimony, their death impacts others to get saved. And it is great that God can do those situations. That's why in the middle of your greatest crises, we should be asking the Father how we can use this to reach our friends. We should be asking our Father to give us guidance. We should seek His help to make sure that we maintain a good testimony of faith and trust in the middle of our crises so that we can encourage others to get born again, to make sure that they've taken care of their eternal, uh, their eternal destiny. Let let me give you another thought here. This is an important one. It's based on verse 35, Jesus wept. The thought here is Jesus feels our pain. I know that that was the campaign slogan for Bill Clinton years ago. 
that he feels your pain. And for a lot of us, we were like, yeah, right, okay? That politicians will say that. Well, our Christ can say it, and it's real. Our Christ in our crises is one who feels our pain. And what amazes me, you know, is this thought that it says a couple different things. It says in verse 33, he groaned in the spirit. It says in verse 35, he wept. It talks about, verse 38, that he's groaning within himself. Now, there's lots of different debate and different discussion by greater Bible scholars than me and you who will say, well, the reason he was was this, that, or the other thing. Let me just tell you that the words that used here where it talks about he wept isn't the idea that he had just a, you know, a, a token tear. The idea is he grieved. He was mourning, like, like genuinely mourning. Now, again, you, you understand already that there's a lot of people gathered at this funeral service for Lazarus, that they, in that area, they would have hired mourners or wailers. That was normal. That was common. Not everybody was there weeping and wailing. Now, in his case, probably the suddenness because of his family, there would have been more natural weeping and wailing, and that would have caught them off guard. But Jesus is not pretending. He is not doing what the hired mourners are doing. It is clear in the text. He's groaning. He's groaning. The idea, he's grieving. The idea is he is weeping is he is moved emotionally. Now, to me, there's a lot of, a lot of speaking, a lot of lessons in this. What it tells me is that this fact is so important. Even though Jesus knew what was going to happen within the next few minutes, he knew Lazarus was going to come back from the grave. He was going to resuscitate him, and yet he's moved. He's moved by the pain of Lazarus even experiencing that momentary death. He is, he is moved by the hurt that is being experienced by his dearest friends. Jesus is not insensitive. Jesus is not callous. Jesus is not not caring. What it says to me is this, feeling deep grief is not sinful. It is not evil. If the master says that he was grieved by the death of Lazarus, then is it appropriate for us to have grief? The answer is, Yes, and that's a normal, natural part of the process. It's, again, we're dealing with something that's somewhat unnatural because it's all part of the, the curse, but at the same time, understand that grief is normal. For individuals who all of a sudden they, they run into that brick wall of crises, the greatest crises, let's talk about death in the family, to say that all of a sudden I have moments where all of a sudden a song will trigger emotions and I cry some more. All of a sudden, a snowstorm will trigger a memory and I'll cry some, some because they were the person who took care of the snow or this is what they said in a snowstorm or some smell or some you're driving down the road and something triggers. By the way, is this not true? Those of you who have lost somebody dear to you that these, that these moments of all of a sudden unexplained, un, unprepared for, you'll get one of those waves of emotion. It'll come, it'll go. It'll come, it'll go. It's like the tide at the ocean. You're going to have some and they'll go. And eventually over a period of time you get a little bit more of a gap between the different waves of emotion. But they're there. And they'll be there. And especially that first full year because you have to go through all the firsts. The first birthday. The first anniversary. The first holiday. And it's hard. And so don't, don't say to yourself, don't say to others, having emotion is wrong. It is not. We are made to be emotional creatures. It is one way we cope with the loss is having these emotions. Where it gets to be a problem is if in that grief you get stuck. 
and there you can't get out and you can't function. Now that's a different story, but it is natural to have some of this and remember this, you trust your Christ, you understand. He understands those moments when in the middle of the night you wake up and you can't get back to sleep and you are crying because of the crises. He understands. He's been through crises. He understands. He, uh, he knows. He, uh, he, he feels. And that's why it says we have a high priest who is touched with the feeling of our infirmities, with all the consequences, including the loss of people that we love, that he can understand and he succors us. The word is in the King James. It's the idea of that parent who hears a child crying in the middle of the night and you get up and you run in there to find out what happened. Did they fall out of the bed? Did they, do they have a need? Do they have a fever? That's succoring the child. That's what Jesus does for us. We trust him. We can rely upon him in the middle of our crises because he knows what it's like. He feels our pain. He understands that. Number five, Christ, our Christ in our crises. What do we know about him? Our Christ knows what you need so as to handle the pain from your crises. He knows exactly what you need at this moment. I take this idea from Martha, that Jesus comes and talks with her. When he arrives and has a conversation with her, and by the way, isn't this ironic that the story makes it very clear she's the one that runs to Jesus before Mary. In the other story, who's the one that runs to Jesus? It's Mary. But this time, she's the one that heads out, sees him right away. She seeks him out in the middle of her pain. She goes to him and has the conversation, and he talks at length. Now, I'm basing this upon verses 23, 24, 25, 26, which we read, where he says, your brother shall rise again. I know the resurrection. And he goes on, I am the resurrection, the life. Believe me. Do you believe me in this? And he shall live, if, if you believe, you shall live, or anybody would. Whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Believest thou this? Now here's my point that he's making with this. He focuses the conversation that she needs at this moment on the future. He doesn't focus it on the loss he focuses on the future reunion. He focuses on the fact that Lazarus is alive and you will see him again. He focuses on the positive aspects. And he asks her, do you believe this? Do you believe your loved one is going to be resurrected? Do you believe that he, in other words, is still somewhere just separated from his body? She says, I believe that. And so what we have here is this thought. Christ knows what we need to talk about in the middle of a crisis, especially the big crises. We need to be focusing on believers on what Christ will do for us in the future. How he has hope for us that, there, that this isn't the end, this is just a move. This isn't the, the uh, cessation of their life as, as uh, their whole future. No, it's just they've moved from this residency to another residency and they're going to be, they are alive and we're going to be back with them and they're going to be resurrected one day. And so that's a conversation that should be had when somebody is having, they go through that issue of family loss, family, family death, whatever it may be, or any other crises, focus on the future. Focus on the future. You're focusing on Christ and saying, He does me good. He knows what I need. You're focusing on a Christ who is kind to you, who understands. Now focus on His promises for the future. That He is going to resolve this. That He is going to 
take it all away. That he is eventually going to be the one who is going to resurrect all these people. To help others handle their crises. If you're dealing with somebody, you say, I don't know what to say to somebody who has a loss. They've gone through a family death. Focus on the hope. Focus on the hope of the future. Help their hearts to be ministered to the way Christ ministered to people who were facing death. He talked about future hope. We need to do that. Now, I was reading a story about a professor in a university in the Midwest, and he was a philosophy professor. What he would do to start every class, every term, he would have a big bottle on, the, on, his, um, on his countertop there in the, in the lecture hall. It would be filled with marbles or beans or tennis balls. And what he would do is he would have everybody in the class write down on a piece of paper how many they thought were inside of here. Beans, marbles, or tennis balls. He'd collect all of them, and then he would be writing them down, just saying, okay, you said this, you said this, you said this. And then he would announce exactly, I'm sorry, before he announced it, he then asked them to write down something else. There was two things he had them write, write down. One was the number of what was inside this container. The other one, what is the best song ever written? Then he'd collect them, write down all their numbers, and he'd say, okay, who was it here? So-and-so, there is 110 in here. Who, who had it? They'd look at the board and they'd say, okay, this person right here, he said 109. They were the closest. That's it. Then he'd ask this song. Which one of you got the next answer right? What is the best song ever written? Who got the right answer? And their response every time was the same. Well, there isn't a correct answer for all of us. There's a correct answer for the 110 or 109 balls in there, but there's not a correct answer. Why not? He'd say, why is that? Because the best song ever written is based upon personal choice, personal whims, personal likes and dislikes. And so he'd make the observation. He says, okay, so you have one, one answer here based upon your personal choice. You have another answer based upon facts. He said, which one is more like religion, choosing a religion, choosing what you're going to worship, personal choice or facts? He said, every time the class almost unanimously would pick personal choice, what they feel like. And as the philosophy theology professor, he would try to talk them out of that and try to point that, hey, wait a minute, our beliefs are not based on personal whims and personal desires, but they are based upon facts. And yet how many times in Bible-believing churches, in churches like this, is there a tendency to say, I trust Christ based more on my personal whims than upon facts? The facts are this. Our Christ can resolve our issues. Our Christ knows what we're going through. Our Christ feels what we're going through. Our Christ can make our crises to become something good for us. Our Christ can turn our crises into evangelism. Our Christ is going to, one day, he's going to resurrect us. So let's make, bring that up to the number six. He can resolve your crises and your pain at any moment. This is the Christ we worship. He is able to say to Mary and Martha, 
Martha. Not only in the future can I resolve it, and now he goes on to prove that he can raise people from the dead and that what he's promising in the future he can do by turning around and saying, I'm going to do it right now. I'm going to bring this man whose body is already beginning to stink. He has been in the tomb. If you doubt whether I can resurrect and whether I can resolve the issues, let me show it to you. And he brings him out of the tomb, calls him forth as a display of his person and his power and his promises that he can do that. My thought is this, that our Christ, if he wants to, he could resolve any crisis that causes us pain right now if he wanted to. Could he take away that financial problems that you're having? Absolutely. He could let you win $5,000 a week from good housekeeping for the rest of your life. Oh, and by the way, you get to pick somebody else to win $5,000 for the rest of your life. My name is Wayne. Don't forget me. Okay. <laughs> Can Christ resolve any financial problem? Can he resolve any health issues? Could our Christ, let, let's, let's be real, real pointed within our family here tonight. Could Christ take away Wanda's pancreatic cancer and totally resolve it in a whim and a wish? He could do that. He could resolve anything. Could he rectify that conflict that you are having with a family member that is causing so much agony to your heart? Yes. Could he restore that conflict that you're having in, in marriage or somebody close to you, one of your kids or some mother or a mother, father or brother or sister? Could he resolve their family conflict? Yeah. He could do that at any moment. Sometimes he chooses, sometimes it doesn't work as immediate. But our Christ is able to handle any difficulty. Even death could not, could not stump Jesus. It, could, you know, it, was, it wasn't beyond him. He could do anything. He can handle anything. He can, if he can handle Lazarus's death, he can handle my bills. If he can handle Lazarus's death, he can handle whatever issue you have going on right now. He can do it. Our Christ, here's a fact, not a whim, here's a fact. Our Jesus can handle any of our issues at any moment. He is so great. And let's add to this. The, uh, the, uh, the story that is seen that will just highlight it of a little child who is caught in a burning building. This is a true story that, that came out of the news. Child is caught in a burning building and the father is down below. The firemen have yet to come and he's yelling through to the child, jump, jump. And the little boy says, I can't, I can't, it's too high. And then the smoke is billowing out. Dad says, you've got to jump, hurry, jump. And the little boy makes this comment. The little boy says, I can't, I can't see you. Dad responds, I can see you. That's all that counts. Don't worry. I can see you. Jump and I'll catch you. Isn't that our Christ? We can't see him at moments, but he sees us. Trust him. Trust him. Trust him. There's, um, there's in the zoos, and I don't, we had the privilege a couple years back to go to the San Diego Zoo. It is a phenomenal zoo. It is amazing. And they had at one time, they had these different animals that they would race up and down this one track area just to show how fast they were. And we saw a couple of these different displays. One of the animals they have in their safari is the impala. The impala can jump. And I mean, it's one of these animals, you got the information there, 10 feet high, 30 feet long, it can jump. Except for at this zoo that we noticed, and there was on the little engravings that they have, they say that this impala it stays in this one area by a three-foot-high berm that they've built. 
How does an animal that has that capability get inside this one area with only a three-foot high fence and never gets out? Because it will not jump where it cannot see where it's landing. Because of fear of what's on the other side, it refuses to jump though it has the capabilities. Do not let your fear, your fear of finances, of issues, of problems, of health issues, do not let your fear fence you in just because you can't see on the other side. We have a master who sees the other side. We have a master who sees where, where we would land. Our God will help us through. Let's trust that Christ because he will one day end all of our crises. He will one day put a finishing touch. They will not bother us. They will not harm us. There is going to be an end, as we said this morning, where he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? That's his question to us. Do you believe that one day I will settle everything? Do you believe that about your Jesus? Do you believe he has that power? Do you believe he has that plan for you? Do you believe that he is working everything out for good and he is one day going to bring you to a spot where you are going to be conformed to him? Do you believe that? If you do, then you're going to sit here and say, I can trust him. I can trust him because he's aware. I can trust him because he knows what ba what's best. I can trust him because he cares, he feels. I know because he can make this something good come out of it in my life or reach into the lives of others. I know that this one is so kind that he can handle my problems, but one day he'll take care of them for sure. I can trust this individual. There's a story that comes out of Britain about an individual, his name is Lord Shaftesbury, lived in the last uh, century and a half ago, and he was just a famous British parliamentarian. He was an individual who served. He had all kinds of honors. In, in later life, they asked him what one of the greatest honors was, and immediately he said, it wasn't any of the royal decrees that were made to honor me. It wasn't any of the wealth bestowed upon me or the titles bestowed. It wasn't any of that. It wasn't the, you know, being made a, a, a lord. It wasn't any of that. Uh, he said, it was by a little girl. I was in London one day. He said, we were, I was on the street. I was in this large crowd. I saw this little girl over there and she was obviously lost. She was a panicked. She wasn't sure where her family was. It was obvious she wasn't sure what to do. And we were on a very busy street and she kept on looking on the other side as if somebody over there, somebody on the other side is, is where she should be in, to be with somebody over there. But she didn't know what to do. And she would look at the people and she would approach people and look at them and then she would back away. She had approached somebody who was walking down the street and he said, I could see this. She would back away. She was terrified by the different people and different folk. He walked towards her and she came running up to him. She paused at his feet. She looked at him and instead of running away, he had it all planned. He was going to kneel down and say, little girl, can I help you? Before he did any of that, she said, sir, can you help me? First time. The first person that she spoke to in her terror and he, she explained, she got separated, she needs to get back to the other side. Her, her parents, her family, her grandmother, whoever it was, was somewhere over there, and she didn't know where they were, and she, didn't, she couldn't get across the street. So she put her hand in his, he walked her across, and he got her reunited with her family, and, they, and looking back, he said, that was the greatest honor anybody ever bestowed upon me, was that little girl's trust in a total stranger, me that she wasn't afraid, that she had feared all these other people, but me, 
she asked to help. And he said, that was the greatest honor. I wonder if our Lord isn't as thrilled when we trust him. When we don't hesitate, when we don't flee, but we say, Jesus, here I am. I need you right now. I trust you right now. He commands us to do that. He wants us to do that. Do, don't we honor him? Don't we glorify him? Don't we magnify him when we trust him? That means we need to trust. This week, in the middle of the difficulty, in the middle of whatever crisis it is, let's trust. Let's not panic. Let's use our prayer. Let's use our trust. Let's be patient. Things we talked about last week. Let's, let's get you know, into a mode where we're going to be working, maintain that peace of God. Why? Because we trust. We trust our Christ in our crises. Father, help me to do that, not just to preach it. Help my friends to do that as well. Help us to magnify you and honor you by us expressing our trust and our confidence in you this week, this evening, this month, this year. Help us as we embark upon this series that's going to get very practical on how to plan for such crises, especially death, what families should do when we come to ideas of plant planning and preparing and talking as families to prepare for that inevitability. As we get into what happens when it strikes our home and how we should, what we should do and how, how, what's, what we're going to need to do and how do we help people that are going through that crisis. As we talk about that this next few weeks, help us to minister one to another wisely, beneficially, and as a result, be able to minister for the glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen. Thanks for being here.